Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that pontificates on the issues of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have new stories including the Hyundai Hydrogen Nexus model, the Volkswagen Golf Lite, Ford reduces the focus range, Nissan celebrates 20 years of the X-Trail, and Polster teams up with a performance artist. We have two feature interviews. I caught up with a colleague who, very early on, was pushing the need for alternative energy. He has now had personal experience in owning an electric car. And we have been testing Hyundai's hydrogen SUV, the Nexo, and we talked to the company about where hydrogen fits in with battery-powered electric cars. It's a case of horses for courses. Now you can always find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. So let's get this program going. First, the news. Hyundai has imported a number of their Nexo hydrogen-powered SUVs into Australia to be used by several selected fleets, including the Queensland government. The Nexo has a range of 666 kilometres, with a refuelling time of 3 to 5 minutes, in a compact SUV with an ANCAP 5-star safety rating, and the latest smart driving assistance systems. It is a very easy and enjoyable car to drive. Scott Nagar from Hyundai notes a special benefit of hydrogen-powered cars. The vehicles actually purify the area they're driving. We need ultra-pure hydrogen to power them. But to mix with that, to actually have the chemical reaction that happens within the fuel cell stack, we need air that's 99.9% pure. We take out all the ultra-fine particulate matter before it goes into the fuel cell. We use that air for the chemical reaction. And the only thing out of the exhaust of the vehicles is water you can drink and purified air with all that fine particulate matter that causes the cancer in the lungs and all the respiratory problems is removed before it's put back into the atmosphere. So the cars are actually driving around, scrubbing the air clean and, and purifying the air as they go. They're, they're a rolling um, air purification system, as well as moving our freight and, and passengers around. Volkswagen has several vehicles with a long heritage, including the perennial Golf hatchback, first manufactured in 1974. This year, they have launched their eighth-generation model. It maintains a distinctive look of a Golf, but has sharpened up the edges of the previous rounded features, particularly about the headlights. Volkswagen's latest generation of driver assistance systems, IQ Drive, which helps the driver in regular real-world situations, including parking, lane changing and accident prevention, is standard on all Golf models. We drove the mid-range automatic Golf Life model, which includes a very modern digital display and a feel of quality even down to the gear changes. But sales are down for other reasons, as Paul Pottinger, General Manager, Corporate Communications for the Volkswagen Group in Australia, noted. Semiconductors, without which cars can no longer run any more than they can run without wheels, are at crisis point in terms of supply globally. And that certainly is impacting all manufacturers, but in terms of uh, Volkswagen specifically, that's coming home to roost in terms of supply of Golf, Tiguan, and to a lesser extent, Touareg. But we are pretty confident of this being addressed by the second quarter of 2022. 
Ford Australia is becoming a ute and SUV company, plus a few hero sedans. The Mustang has always had great sales success, at one time being the best-selling Ford in Australia. It has declined in sales numbers, but the image is as strong as ever. Ford has not succeeded in selling small cars in recent years. So far this year, for every one Focus small sedan sold, Ford has sold 58 Ranger Utes. Consequently, the Focus lineup in Australia will consist only of the Focus ST hot hatch. Ford says that the small car segment in Australia has declined significantly over the past seven years, from 21% of the total industry to 12% in 2020. Over the same period, the percentage of hot hatch sales in that segment have more than tripled. The numbers aren't high, but the percentages indicate that it has an image that is important to Ford's whole fleet. Nissan managed to get into the small to medium-sized SUV market quite early. They are now celebrating 20 years of the X-Trail in our market, representing sales of over 272,000 vehicles. The latest update of the X-Trail will arrive in Australia in December. The base model with the 2-litre petrol engine and manual transmission has modest power figures of 106 kilowatts, but the 2.5-litre has 126 kilowatts of power and more torque. The 2-litre unit features Nissan's direct injection gasoline technology and twin variable timing control. But interestingly, the 2-litre X-Trail manual has a rated fuel consumption of 8.2 litres per 100 kilometres on the combined cycle, whereas the larger 2.5-litre engine has a lower fuel consumption figure of 7.9 litres per 100. These are for the two-wheel drive versions. Toyota's RAV4 dominates with a quarter of the medium SUV market sales, many of which are hybrids, while second-place Mazda CX-5 has 18%. Polestar is a Swedish company that develops electric performance cars and offers hardware upgrades and engine software optimizations for Volvo models. Like Volvo, they are now part of the Chinese Geely group of companies. Like informed governments and advanced vehicle manufacturers, they are looking at innovative ways to engage with the public about the future of electrification. They have employed an awareness artist, Dice Beer Sticker, and have created a new interactive installation, We Harvest Wind, that encourages people to think about the biggest challenges of our time, the climate crisis, pollution, and the transition to renewable energy. It is being exhibited at the Steedlick Museum in Amsterdam. The art installation lets visitors control the wind speed using a large fan, and as the wind hits the sculpture, it generates energy, which causes the installation to come to life. Polestar wants to encourage transparency in the electric vehicle sector. And that has been the news. I caught up with a colleague, Jack Haley. We worked together for quite a number of years in the New South Wales Motoring Club. Jack is a mechanical engineer and he advocated very early on for the need for sustainable energy. I have been driving the Hyundai Ioniq 5 electric vehicle, so I got in touch with him to have a bit of a chat. Turns out he's got a Renault electric vehicle, so he certainly has some practical experience. G'day, Jack. G'day, David. How are you? Good, mate. What did you get and when did you get it, the electric car? Okay, yes, I got the Renault Zoe, which is the um, small car. About a year ago, I was looking for an electric vehicle and 
I was on the point of actually buying a imported Nissan Leaf from Japan, and the Zoe came up as a sort of run-out model for $36,000 drive away. So I'm going to pay more than that for a Nissan Leaf um, imported from Japan. So it was uh, looked like a great deal and had it delivered, and it's been a great car. They tried to sell it here, but it went out. Uh, and they stopped selling. Why? Yeah, I think the original asking price was about $50,000, and uh, it was uh, obviously a bit much for a what's quite a small car. And obviously they didn't didn't sell enough, so they ran out the last few of them um, at a lower price. So some of us got a bargain. How do you use it? How many kilometres have you done on it? Well, I only ever intended it to be a short-range car. Uh, I knew the the practical range was about 250 kilometres, and um, I only ever used it around the city. So I've got, um, after about a year, I've got 5,500 kilometres on it. See, that's not as unusual as some might think. More than average do more than that, but there's still a lot that do that. So what do you do if you've got a long trip? Oh, well, uh, mainly I ride my um, uh, BMW 1250 GS motorbike for longer trips, but if I needed to carry a heavy load or something, I'd just hire a car for however long I needed it. And it's worked out cost-effectively. What does it cost to charge? Well, extremely low. Um, If you go to one of the street charges or car park charges... It's typically about perhaps $3 for a full a battery charge, which is, you know, as I say, about 250 kilometres. So it's much cheaper than a fossil car. One or two cents a kilometre? Well, essentially, yes. So the actual charge is not a lot, but what about other expenses? Well, really, I'm not expecting any great expenses from it because the only service items or the wear items, if you like, are the brakes and the tyres, which um, uh, at a pinch I can do myself. Um, the motor should be a lifetime unit. Um, there's only one moving part, the stator, and um, the battery it- itself has a warranty, I think, of five years. And many um, uh, and manufacturers are now offering up to eight or ten years. So there, there really should be uh, very low running costs. You campaigned early on, as I said, not only for electric vehicles with batteries, but also hydrogen. You saw that as being important. Yes, I think, uh, well, many years, some years ago now, uh, we were casting around for alternative fuels for vehicles, and at that stage we were looking for things like ethanol and so on. But hydrogen was uh, obviously a practical vehicle. There was uh, some work done at Melbourne University um, uh, some time ago on converting uh, normal fossil spark ignition engines to hydrogen. Mm. So there's a lot of potential, but, um, I mean, my personal view is hydrogen's okay for long-distance vehicles, but... Really, battery vehicles are the uh, the practical alternative for um, urban conditions and even longer trips. I think that's very much where Hyundai is aiming at. Hydrogen is particularly good as an alternative to diesel engines. The long-distance trip uh, is probably at its most uh, advantageous. Now, you had a drive of the new Hyundai Ioniq 5. What were your first impressions? Oh, well, obviously very, very impressed with... Um, you know, a vehicle that's been designed from the ground up as an EV, like the Zoe, very quiet, smooth, um, very powerful, of course, off the mark, with the uh, electric motor having maximum torque at, at zero revs, and a very, very well-equipped vehicle, but, of course, much more expensive than the, the Zoe. And ours was just the single-engine rear-wheel drive. Uh, there is a more powerful dual-engine version of the Ionic 5. There were a couple of little touches to it that you'd liked. Can you tell me about the mirrors? And the adjustment thereof? Oh, on the Zoe, you mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, the, the, there are some um, nice uh, design touches on, on the Zoe. I mean, it's minor stuff, but it, it shows that the um, designers have really thought about what they're doing. Um, the mirrors on the Zoe uh, will retract, and the detent on the control that does that is, is heavier on the, on the um, retracting position than on the adjustment position. So you can retract the mirrors any time, and just by feel, you don't actually have to look at the control. So just little touches like that are very nice. But that's all part of minimising distraction, isn't it? But if you try and adjust the mirrors and you accidentally fold them, you get frustrated and panic a bit, at least I do, and that just doesn't help your driving. It's little touches like that that can make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I say, it shows they've thought about the issue and they've gone ahead and, um, and tried to address it. Well, the things you, you've done is you've bought one, albeit in a run-out, but you've got one at a, a good price. I presume it doesn't quite have the, the road safety lane departure warning and other electronic features that the Ionic 5 now has a year later. Is that the case? Yeah, that's exactly right. And though I guess that's one disappointment is that um, at its original price of 50000 so, um, it doesn't have... Um, uh, adaptive cruise control or lane departure warnings or rear uh, cross traffic warning or any of those things it's only got the basic um, uh, you know stability control abs etc i wonder though whether that might not be a way to getting the price down a bit that if you really had to have uh, an electric vehicle because you couldn't rules may come in that you can't drive it into the city area unless it's a low ultra low emission vehicle that uh, we may compromise some of those things and the other one is compromising the battery size for the range because as you say you don't need the range that everyone seems to be talking about you can survive without it and so you'd be happy to pay less for a car with a, that compromise yeah well that's true i think some uh, the manufacturers are, are sort of addressing that issue with batteries by putting out different models with substantially different ranges and the, obviously the shorter range ones are cheaper um, I think the issue with the um, uh, the driver assistance controls is how much the manufacturer wants to charge for the R&D that's gone into them uh, during the development um, And but ultimately I think um, like any of the uh, stability control etc they'll just become a, a um, an automatic item to be included after the R&D is written off and they just become a, um, a standard feature they can have great safety benefits uh, along the way, so one hardly would want to argue against that. Still, the Ionic 5 is unfortunately still very expensive, but a, a distinctively different-looking vehicle, isn't it? Yes, um, you, you, you certainly wouldn't mistake it for uh, any, any others in the range, and um, I, I think that's uh, that's a good thing. I think it promotes the the EVs as a you know as something entirely different. Um, I think the Renault Zoe is not so different, although it's a unique body shape, um, but the, uh, with the big um, logo on the front and, and other features, they've, I think Renault's tried to keep a family resemblance, which um, you know, all the manufacturers like to do in one way or another. They had a Twiggy, was it? A, a Twingo, Twingo, wasn't it? Uh, that looked like a roller skate on wheels. Well, yes, I think that was the um, city car category, which um, wouldn't, isn't allowed in Australia because it doesn't meet the Australian design rules, but there is a category for that in Europe, and some of the manufacturers do um, uh, manufacture vehicles to fit into that category. 
Um, but it, yeah, it's not a uh, it's not a possibility in Australia at the moment. But that's a classic example, perhaps, of compromising some things in order to have, you know, a more sustainable vehicle that can cope well with the uh, demands on it. Mm, yeah, sure. I mean, that's an option. Um, I, I think you you probably have to change your societal expectations <laughs> to, to manage that, and also uh, the the authorities have to probably come to the party with much lower speed limits so you're not um, ah. uh, in collisions uh, the, the occupants are not too disadvantaged by the uh, the reduced safety features that's a lovely thought isn't it i'm not necessarily promoting that i'm just wondering whether that remains a consideration or a possibility going jack that's lovely to talk to you i appreciate your time greatly and and yeah i believe you went on a ride on your bike uh, yesterday was it good Ah, fabulous. Um, against all expectations, the weather was wonderful and um, uh, we had a great day. As part of a group, I think. Uh, yeah, only three of us. Uh, a midweek uh, uh, event, so only uh, people working shift work or retirees come along. <laughs> There's hope for me yet. <laughs> You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for your time. Thanks, David. Cheers. And that's Jack Haley, a mechanical engineer, a former work colleague of mine, but one who very early on was pushing the need for the desirability and the practicality, as he's shown himself, of adapting sustainable fuel sources. You're listening to Overdrive. This week we are driving the Land Rover Discovery R-Dynamic. Since its introduction in Australia in 1991, the Discovery has been a strong competitor to the Land Cruiser and Patrol that dominated the market back then. It's now in its fifth generation and the Discovery provides a combination of on-road ride and handling along with off-road capability that few can genuinely match. Looking more like a large SUV than a robust four-wheel drive, the Discovery has sleek lines that make it look smaller than it actually is. Step inside and the luxury ambience is obvious. It definitely feels classy with cream leather everywhere and well-laid-out dash and instruments. One feature is the 11.4-inch light touchscreen, which is integrated into the central stack in elegant style. Rear seat room is good for three taller people and the rearmost two seats are best in class. It's still the best seven-seat four-wheel drive on the market for space and versatility. Four-wheel drive capabilities enhanced by the electronic air suspension, twin-speed transfer box with high and low range, electronic diff lock, and terrain response drive mode selection. Priced from a touch over $107,000 plus the usual costs, it's poised perfectly to take on the new Land Cruiser 300 series. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. A couple of major announcements have been made about building major hydrogen production plants. The Twiggy Forest or the New South Wales Government are two examples. Now, Hyundai has been working long and hard and cleverly at the way in which we should embrace or take on electric vehicles, whether they be powered by battery or by hydrogen. The person who's been leading that, not from a marketing point of view, but from the technology and the understanding point of view, is Scott Nagar, and he joins us on the line. G'day, Scott. G'day, David. How are you? Very well, mate. Very well. These announcements, are they symbolic as well as being potentially productive? I think the announcements have been very productive from governments, from Twiggy Forest himself, and, and from what Hyundai has just announced themselves in the last couple of weeks about our transition for the future and our vision for the future with technology we've been working on for 20 years now. It's not uh, a flash in the pan, is it? 
No, this is this is long-term development, um, and we've been deploying vehicles now for a number of years. Uh, we're into our second-generation hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. We've got trucks deployed in Europe, and we're working on um, trains, trams, buses, and all the other things that Hyundai makes for global markets. So we'll be running on, on hydrogen. We actually made an announcement that by 2028, all of the trucks we produce for the global markets will be running on hydrogen fuel cells only and not diesel. All your trucks? That's correct. All of our trucks will be 2028 will be hydrogen only, and a number of our other cars will come through with zero emission platforms, um, and they'll be a combination um, of both electric and some hydrogen fuel cell. You don't make many trucks now, do you? So you're talking about producing trucks, I guess, for at that time, niches in the market, but nonetheless, the first steps towards using them more expansively. Yeah, we don't have a big market here in Australia for the trucks. We do have, have Hyundai trucks here in the country, but we do make a lot for other countries around the world, um, and especially in the Korean domestic market. And, and there's a big push to, to make those as their emission truck. And, and as global emission regulations cut in around the world on light vehicles, those same regulations cut in around the same time for heavy vehicles as well. So there is a big push to decarbonise both the light vehicle, but also the, the heavy vehicle transport sector. I've, I've had a chance to ride in hydrogen buses in London five and six years ago. There's hydrogen tra- uh, trains running in Germany now. Uh, as one of the biggest shipbuilders in the world for commercial shipping, we're also working on hydrogen fuel cells for heavy marine applications, for excavators. You know, Everything that we build that has to propel itself in some way or another will be powered by hydrogen uh, or electric for the future. Shipping is, in fact, one of the dirtiest uh, polluters around uh, they use i think some pretty old uh, not old but certainly low quality fuel so that is one example is that the point though that it is a very diverse industry it has many applications it is not just for cars yeah it's, it's well beyond cars we, we go from using the same fuel stacks that will be in our, our passenger vehicles now and the next that we've got here in australia and deployed with with two governments in australia the act government and also the queensland government that same fuel stack in the cars is also used in stationary fuel cells to power buildings as backup power generation. It's the same fuel cells that be racked and stacked and go into ships. Um, we use three of them in a truck. We use two of them in a bus. It's basically that same box with no moving parts uh, that generates the energy from electricity for hydrogen to power an electric motor, which have been across all of our, our platforms. Is it a case that it will be applied, do you think, in Australia in specific situations? I think of perhaps vehicles that start and finish the day at a depot or perhaps the long-distance truck where there needs to be just one major refuelling centre halfway along. Is Is it those sorts of specific examples that you think will be pursued in the short term? deploy infrastructure uh, in the early stages, look at those back-to-base operations and look at those line haul routes where we've got hundreds of trucks now coming down the Hume Highway or coming down the Pacific Highway, linking those those major cities and those, those really congested regional routes and having a cleaner, greener alternative. That's going to happen. That's, just, that's not something we're, we're planning on for you know, 10, 15, 20 years' time. That's conversations we're having right now. The fact that there is multi-ways to use hydrogen as a power source, there's also multiple reasons to do it, isn't it? It it is not that we are just being pushed unwillingly by uh, an environmental issue, some would say a lobby, but the fact that it does have multiple values, is that part of the message? 
Yeah, it is. No, and it's, it's just a fact that we've got so much land. We've got the best overlap of wind. We've got the best overlap of solar anywhere in the world. And the CSRO maps will, will show that. But we've got so much space as well. The rest of the world is looking at us, and especially our, our um, neighbours in the APAC region, especially Southern Asia, are looking at ours to power their transport networks and their grids for the future. But really, we should be looking at home first. How do we fortify and secure our own transport networks with the green energy we can use here, produce here, either for electric vehicles or for hydrogen fuel cell? And, it, and it's not picking a winner. So you would see the hydrogen-powered vehicle, while you have brought out a sedan and, and, and has, has another major manufacturer, you would see, though, that the, the biggest steps are going to be made with the large diesel engines, with the freight hauling. Is that going to be the dominant success in the short term? To those heavier platforms, so those larger SUVs, pickups, um, like commercial vehicles, uh, and then you start to get into those um, those smaller trucks and large trucks. As the mass of a vehicle gets heavier, hydrogen technology is far more capable of propelling those vehicles in a much more efficient manner. The refueling's far quicker. A vehicle we can refuel in three to five minutes. A truck I can refuel in in seven to fi- uh, fifteen minutes. Um, a car uses six point. Well, our car uses six point three three kilos of hydrogen. To do over 660 kilometres, a truck will use anywhere from 35 to 55 kilos to do that, you know, 500 or 1,000, depending on the load, um, carrying capacity, whether it's running a freezer uh, for the back of it. I was at a conference today where they use the technical term, we have to pull our finger out in order to get going. You must be uh, thankful for the efforts of private industry and state governments that that is encouraging. Yeah, it's very encouraging. I got the chance to, to talk with Premier Palaszczuk. I actually had Premier in Korea with me a couple of years ago when we got to get the Premier to drive a Hyundai fuel cell vehicle when it was a prototype at our R&D facility in near Seoul. Uh, and then Premier Palaszczuk came back to Australia, committed to five cars, and, and has got a hydrogen station under construction now. We've done the same thing um, with the uh, Chief Minister for the ACT. Um, went over, got to experience the technology. A station was built, and there's 20 hydrogen cars are running around the ACT now with public servants. It is hopeful that we may then see a federal campaign where it is based on facts rather than just tactics, where it's not trying to score points for the sake of it, but to highlight good policy. That's right. I think, you know, there's points going to be made and politicians will continue to do that. But I think at the core of it is what's best for our country, what's best for my kids, your grandkids and, and the generations to come. We're a country that's blessed with resources. Why don't we take advantage of it? Why are we relying on imported fossil fuels and internal combustion when there are better choices out there? Competition drives innovation and also drives the prices down. And that's what it's all about is getting these down to cost parity and getting the cost of hydrogen fuel down um, below what a dollar-cost equivalent of petrol is today. But it'd be Australian Australian hydrogen. Australian hydrogen. That's a great campaign, isn't it? Made by Australians, not made offshore and imported in. It's it's Australian hydrogen made for Australians with our our, natural resources. It's a win-win-win. Scott, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. And that was Scott Nagar from Hyundai, who has been working, as you've heard, long and hard and very properly in order to bring about not just a competitive advantage from one side, but a better community overall in terms of jobs, in terms of pollution, in terms of fuel security. The list goes on and on. 
and they are embracing it. Hyundai and others are embracing it with passion, which is exactly what we all need to do. You're listening to Overdrive. In a market that is dominated by SUV, Jaguar's XC sedan, which was updated in September 21, embodies all that is good about the brand. One thing Jaguar has always done is produce well-proportioned, elegant saloons, and the smaller XE is no exception. We're driving the R-Dynamic Black P300 all-wheel drive that adds a number of gloss black highlights and more for visual appeal. Sit inside and the contrast cream leather seats and black dash sets the ambience. Front seats are exceptionally comfortable with multiple electronic adjustments. Everything is oriented around the driver with clear instrument binnacle, head-up display and central screen that has the latest in infotainment connectivity and light touch functionality. The XE is ideal for two people as the rear seat legroom and boot space is small, but the front occupants are well catered for. The XE is powered by a 2-litre twin-turbo Ingenium petrol engine, provides spirited performance and surprisingly good economy. Ride and handling are smooth and compliant and the XE is deceptively quick. What is a pleasant surprise is that the Jaguar XCR Dynamic Black starts from around $64,700 plus the usual costs and comes well equipped at that price. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Jack Haley, Scott Nager, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. There's more information at drivenmedia.com.au. All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.